This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. Today is August the 25th. My name is John Dunn. Are you ready to strut your mutt? You're like, yeah, John, I walk my dogs every day. No, I mean, are you ready to participate in the peer-to-peer fundraising event, Strut Your Mutt? It raises tons of money to help save the lives of pets every year. If you're not familiar, as I said, Strut Your Mutt is a fundraising event. It offers our best friends, network partners across the country, the opportunity to use this totally free fundraising platform that you can use to engage your volunteers, your supporters, to fundraise for your organization by asking their friends and family to sponsor the walk. I'm not gonna go into all the specifics about how the teams work and all of that. Of course, we'll have links in the show notes area on your podcast, player, but your organization, if you are not a network partner, you do need to be. Once you are, you can create a team, ask your supporters to join your team. If you're just one person, that's okay. You can search for partners in your area that you can support. So Best Friends is hosting some in-person strut events in select cities. So check out the link to see if you are in or near one of them. But if not, you can still do this virtually on Strut Your Mutt Day, which is October 22nd. And you may be like the group currently at the top of the leaderboard, Love of Dogs Fund in Arizona. They set a goal to raise $30,000. They're already closing in on 19,000 and it's only August. The fundraising period ends at the end of October. So hopefully they're gonna smash that goal. Now there won't be a Best Friends hosted event in their area. So they're putting on their own event to engage their supporters, pretty cool. Don't forget about the upcoming National Adoption Weekend event. You do have time to register, but not too much longer. Again, links in the show notes about the adoption event and strut your mud. September is National Preparedness Month. This was a new one to me, but it's an annual campaign led by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, where they, along with thousands of other federal, state, local governments, and organizations like the Red Cross and Best Friends, remind you to do what you need to do in order to be ready when disaster strikes. Each year, FEMA gives National Preparedness Month a theme, and for 2022, it is a lasting legacy. The life you've built is worth protecting. Prepare for disasters to create a lasting legacy for you and your family. Personally, I think we should specifically add and your pets to that. So there's individual readiness, but for those of you in the animal welfare industry, caring for pets at a facility or through foster homes, you need to have a plan in place to help you get through whatever comes your way. Because as you will hear from today's guest, we may not know the future, but we can say with certainty that there will be trouble ahead for all of us. So here's my chat with the Senior Manager of Emergency Services for Best Friends, Sharon Howa. Well, Sharon, it's great to have you back on the podcast. You know, we've talked about this before, but it has been a while. Uh, I think we're about two years uh, since you've been on. So, you know, I think uh, fair to say that we all understand very clearly now how a disruption can affect all of us, whether that's weather or a virus. So happy to be able to chat now because things do seem calmer than they've been. And, you know, with preparedness month coming up, uh, what better time to chat? I wish that was the case. I mean, things are still going on, but it's not the same level that we've experienced the last several years. So that that's been good. You know, I, I I'm very happy when September rolls around because National Preparedness Month really hopefully inspires people to take those critical steps in preparing themselves and their families and their 
their furry family members for all types of disasters. I mean, we're, we're seeing it every day from the droughts in Massachusetts to the floods in the Southwest to the wildfires in the Pacific Northwest in California. I mean, it's we, we have no shortage of disasters and, uh, you know, that that's going to just be ever increasing. So, yeah, National Preparedness Month is a good reminder. Well, I mean, I almost want to ask you to define a disaster for me, because I think, you know, when I think of disasters, I mean, I think of the catastrophic weather related, you know, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Harvey, and then, you know, we got wildfires and floods. But again, I think COVID hopefully taught us that these life altering crises can come in many forms and can last a long time. So even though you may feel you live in a place that doesn't suffer from you know weather events, you're not in a hurricane zone, there are things that happen and will happen that affect all of us no matter where you are. So I think you can't afford to brush this off and say, well, I don't live near a coast or the hundred year earthquake they keep talking about, it's not ever gonna happen because things are happening more often, more intensely, and in more places. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're spot on. I, I you know, I think of disasters, I, I kind of like to translate disasters into emergencies, because I feel like um, disasters are like the catastrophic events that you hear on the national news. To me, an emergency is something much more personalized. It could be you're burned out of your house or your apartment, you're flooded out of your car, you experience some kind of an emergency in your life that requires you to think about how you could have been better prepared for it next time. Disasters, when we think of the word disasters, and, and they are interchangeable, but when you think of the word disasters, that's the stuff that makes the national news that you're like, oh my gosh, look what's happening in the Southwest with all those floods and all those people that died. We don't want to wait for those opportunities uh, to take place before we start planning for them. So, you know, again, going back to National Preparedness Month, those of you that are listening, realize that, you know, you don't have to just do it in September. <laughs> like every month should be National Preparedness Month. Like every day should be Valentine's Day. But um, I hope that it inspires you at least to think about what is your plan with your family when something that can impact you and your daily life and force you out of your home for either several hours or several days or even forever. If you're separated from your family members, what's your plan to reunite? If you, you know, need to evacuate with your animals, like how are you going to do that in a moment's notice? Like, do you have, are your animals crate trained? Are they comfortable in crates? You know, are you waiting for till the very last moment, even though emergency officials are saying evacuate early or evacuate now. Those are things that you really need to kind of think through in advance of a disaster. And, you know, and for those of you who might be listening or who, who might say, oh, well, you know, nothing's ever happened here. Like, please, <laughs> please, I urge you, you know, what used to be 100 year floods are now literally yearly events. It is a matter of time before all of us have some kind of disaster or emergency that impacts us. So it's better to be prepared. But I'm a friend of Murphy. And so Murphy's law, if you plan for it, it won't happen. <laughs> so, you know, I just hope that uh, Murphy's kind to everybody. So go plan. The last two years, I think we could call it a disaster, maybe not in the conventional sense. But, you know, again, in, in terms of affecting everyone, affecting our daily lives, affecting our jobs, our families, like this was in its own way and still is a disaster, Eco economics, housing, all of that stuff. And, you know, depending on who you ask, uh, of course, the pandemic isn't over. Uh, but let's not get into that debate today. You know, but the majority of folks seem to have kind of moved on from COVID at this point, you know, accepted that risk, which is fair. Uh, but I'm wondering what we learned from it. 
you know, uh, I mean, folks in the hurricane zones, I, my guess is you just got to go through that once before you get prepared. Do you think we learned anything from the pandemic? Ooh, that's a heavy question, John. I, I would like to say that we've all learned from COVID in particular, because it was such a tremendously disruptive event. And, you know, no one saw it coming. We, we really, you know, I, I think a lot of us kind of live in this world where we're like, well, that won't ever happen. You know, and we, we want to think that way. But I think COVID made us realize that, yeah, that can happen. It was kind of, to me, it was kind of like 9-11. Like it was like, oh, wow, that can happen, you know, in, in a place that you felt so safe. Anything that's disruptive, I hope shakes you to your core and makes you realize what can I have done better to plan for it? And what can I do now to make sure that doesn't happen again? Do Have we learned anything from COVID? I, I would, I like to stay optimistic and say, I think a lot of people have learned from COVID. And and again, I, you know, you, you mentioned we're not over it. Like we're probably in the most contagious phase of COVID, except it's a much more mild case for many people. But I think that it shows us that the term disasters can be a very individual event for, for many people who have lost a loved one to COVID. You know, that was a disaster in its own right. And realizing that as a society, we really just, maybe didn't handle that as well as we could have. Will the next one be worse? Who knows? We can't stop living because of these things. We just need to adjust how we live so that we can do it in a much more safe manner. I definitely learned to, at the very least, have a reasonable amount of food and supplies on hand at all times. Uh, and, and I think I also learned that truly, you know, you have to be the one person that thinks and cares about you. You know, you have to be your own rescuer if you're able, because there's no guarantee that you will be able to get help from the government or anyone. And of course, that's true for shelters and rescues. I mean, if someone didn't have toilet paper and hand sanitizer on hand in 2019, uh, I'm going to guess that they do now. <laughs> I think people still have those stocks from 2020 that they, they hoarded. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the government can't simply be there for everybody. There's that's just not feasible. We're too big. <laughs> We're too many. We we do have to think individually about how can we be prepared for all types of events? How do I protect myself and my family? And you know, when I say family, I include the animals. How do I protect all of us from any type of event? And how do I make sure that we can get to safety? And how do I make sure that we have all of the supplies that we need to get through it? Does that mean I have to hoard toilet paper? No, <laughs> but you know, I, I need a stock. The government can only do so much and their whole role in disaster and the disaster management stuff is for the masses. They don't think of the individual needs of every single person. So if you're an individual that needs medication, you're going to need to have that medication for the first few hours, um, for the first few days. You're not going to be able to get that replaced quickly. If you're someone who needs some type of specialized medical equipment, that's also something that you're going to need to figure out a way to be able to take with you. And if you can't figure out a way to take with you, something that you can procure somewhere else quickly. You have to be prepared for at least several days to manage on your own. That is the reality of it. And you, you just need to really be as prepared as you can be to take care of yourself and listen to officials when they say evacuate. If they're telling you that something's not safe, you know, even if it turns out to be not true, because for whatever reason, weather patterns change at the last minute, it's not their fault that they got it wrong. They 
predicted that it could be a big possibility that that weather pattern would have, you know, hit you or impact, impacted your area. But you got to listen to them because I think it's really important that we, we make those practice and look at those opportunities as practice runs. Like, thankfully, that storm didn't end up hitting your area. But at least it gave you an opportunity to practice your plan and see what shortfalls there might be in the plan. And next time you when there is an actual disaster that might hit you, you get it right. There's no harm, no foul in that. Sharon, on the podcast, as you know, a lot of our listeners are with animal welfare organizations. They work at shelters, humane societies. They're animal caregivers, executive directors, board members. But then we have folks who aren't paid to do the work, but they're volunteers. They're members of the animal-loving public supporting the work. And I don't know how different ultimately the prep would be. Obviously, organizations, you know, we're talking about a much bigger scale and more animals. But I imagine some of the principles on a preparedness plan are the same. It's a good question because obviously when you're talking about groups, my very first point is the the workers have to have an individual plan, whether it's a shelter or a rescue, and you've got volunteers or staff members, as well as a, a number of animals that that would need to be evacuated or shelter in place. I think that the very the key to any type of workplace preparedness is making sure that your individual staff members are as prepared because you do not want what happened during Hurricane Katrina, where a lot of the New Orleans Police Department ended up leaving the force because they wanted to go home and check on their families because the storm was so bad. So you want to make sure that your family, your your staff members and your volunteers have their own plans in place so that when there is something that needs to happen for your shelter, like an evacuation or whatnot, they're not thinking about home because they've got a plan in place. They have a neighbor that can check on their dogs. They have their family member down the block that went to go get their kids. There is a plan in place for their families and they can focus solely on the workplace and, and helping to get the animals out or whatever the actionable item needs to, needs to take place. And there are so many great resources uh, online about w- individual preparedness and what that, what that entails. You can go to ready.gov. You can go to our website and type in emergency preparedness and come up with a whole bunch of different items that, that you'd need to put in for yourself and your pets and your family. We really want to kind of focus on a communications plan with your family. If you get separated, you have some way of communicating with each other. I think one of the things that people often forget is that cell phones will probably not be usable in the immediate aftermath of a disaster, and even local landlines might be inundated. So one of the the recommendations is thinking about some kind of out-of-state contact that you and your family members know that's who you would call someone who's outside of the impacted area where you could share information about your status. Like I'm okay. Tell my wife I'm okay. Tell my husband I'm okay. Um, And that way, you know, you're, you're, you have some way of communicating with one another and knowing that they're safe. And then, you know, the more staff members and volunteers that you need to rely on in your workplace to help you evacuate, the more that they're prepared, the more ready they're going to be to help support the shelter or rescue or workplace in a disaster, you know, so you might want to even consider like for September being preparedness month, you might want to consider some incentives or contests, you know, to kind of get your your employees thinking about putting together a go bag or a plan. You might even want to provide some, you know, logoed gear, like a, a logoed go bag or a logoed uh 
pet supplies for their pet emergency supply kit. So there's a bunch of different things that you can kind of get creative about to kind of inspire your staff to make those plans happen for the their themselves so that they can be better focused when there's a disaster that impacts your workplace. And then shifting to the workplace, I think that, you know, depending on the type of disaster, there are so many different things that you can do to really prepare for it. You know, if you're in a wildfire preparedness area, uh, uh, sorry, a wildfire prone area, you might want to think about even the external perimeter of your facility, you know, depending on whether you're in an urban or suburban or rural area, you might want to just consider looking at any dry brush or vegetation that's outside of your facility that you can cut away and help to minimize the spread of fire cut the lawn if you have a grassy area, which many shelters do for dog runs or whatnot. Um, you might want to cut the grass because or water the grass because if you have dry grass, then obviously you're gonna that's gonna catch fire a lot faster too. And for the private shelters, you might want to check on insurance policies to determine what type of coverage you have if your property is impacted by the fire. And then one of the things that I really recommend, even though it's very time consuming, especially if you have a facility or even for the individual preparedness piece, find time to catalog the items you have because that only helps with your insurance policy. Like, especially if you've got head, like, you know, very expensive equipment that's hard to replace. Cataloging that and taking photos of it will only help with your insurance, uh, recouping the money for, from your insurance. I think that's often a piece that people miss. But that is a way to kind of help plan for any types of disasters and help you well on your way to recovery in the aftermath. The most important thing is knowing where you're going to go. If you've got a a large number of animals, um, making sure that you have partnerships in place. And, you know, with wildfires, it's a little tricky because you don't know who else is impacted. So if you've got partners that are down the canyon from you, They might also be impacted by the wildfire. So think more broadly about where you can make those partnerships happen. Maybe it's, you know, on the other side of town. Maybe it's on the other side of the state. Maybe it's in another state, a nearby state. So think about where you would take your animals um, if you had to evacuate uh, ahead of a disaster. And think about it in a very unique way. It doesn't necessarily even have to be other rescues. It might be ranchers. It might be zoos. It might be other sanctuaries or wildlife refuges that have the space to help you temporarily. I know it can be intimidating, but don't be shy to call your local emergency management agency and tell them, I have this many animals and what would you recommend that I uh, do if I needed to evacuate? Are there any fairgrounds? or stockyards in the area that we could utilize or that you would be utilizing that I could have space for some of my animals and, you know, at least build that relationship up with your local emergency management agency. You mentioned some resources there, ready.gov, our website. Just a reminder, we'll have links in the show notes and also at bestfriends.org slash podcast. You mentioned the local emergency management folks, and I actually did have a question about that. You know, I, most, if not all municipalities have resources allocated to this. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not be your town or city, but maybe the county, whatever that is. And I, again, I was going to ask you about that and whether or not you think calling them and saying, hey, emergency manager person, I don't know what titles are, um, but I'm here and I have a facility. I'm an animal welfare nonprofit. I have this many animals. We're located here. Uh, If nothing else, just to say, if something happens, I am here and I may very well need help 
don't forget about me. You know, it, it really depends on the level of preparedness of that local emergency management agency. I would love to say, yeah, they totally will be helpful, but they may not be only because they don't know exactly what their animal response plan is. They might not have a very strong animal response plan. It, a lot of what we've seen is very reactionary. But then there are other emergency management agencies that are totally, totally get it. They already have a plan, an operations plan that requires all animals going to a fairground and it's going to be run by this organization and this group is going to come in and take care of the food and all of that for the animals. So, you know, it really depends. I can't speak to every single emergency management agency, but all I can say is it doesn't hurt to call your emergency management agency and say, hey, I'm an, you know, an animal welfare organization in your community and I am working on creating a disaster plan and I have this many animals in my care. And if there were this type of disaster to happen, to happen and you know would i be able to bring my animals to an area that you're running like a fairgrounds or a stockyard they might say no because that's only for people's pets they might say yes you can have it as long as you provide the staff and the you know all the the necessary items to care for the animals so it really depends um, but all i can say is it doesn't hurt to, to start that conversation and Start that conversation way ahead of any disaster. Do not call, the the way to not make friends with your emergency manager is call them and ask them the question while the disaster is happening. They will not not necessarily be happy about that. Well, this is going to sound like a silly question, possibly, and if for no bigger reason than your role and who you are. But we're all busy, Sharon. There are shelters that are woefully understaffed. They're struggling to get through the day to day, and this quite frankly, does sound kind of like a lot of work. Uh, so again, knowing your position on this, and I know you're going to say everybody should do it, but where does this fit in in terms of the resources I have available and what I should be allocating to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I look, the very first thing I'll say is that it is literally the difference between life and death for a lot of locations that are in disaster-prone areas. Not having a plan may very well result in death of your animals, of people, of, you know, your infrastructure, your facilities. And I think that it's literally probably the most important thing that you could do because climate change is happening at such a rapid pace. And we're seeing so many different types of disasters occurring in places that it didn't before. And again, with the magnitude and the volume and intensity that we haven't seen in the past. So it doesn't have to be a very daunting process because there are so many resources that are available to you to help you get through it. It's literally putting an hour or two together to think through what is it that I need to put together? What is it that I need to do? What do I want to focus on? Is it evacuating my facility? Is it because there are other disasters where you need to shelter in place depending on where you live because of air quality concerns you need to think about the different scenarios that would require you to either leave or to stay for a number of days. And what is that going to take to get you there? It literally might just be about putting a list together of supplies and equipment you might need to get by. It might also include developing those partnerships. And, you know, it doesn't have to be you doing everything. If you've got volunteers, this is a great volunteer project. 
get them involved in making some calls to some partners around the region. I want to say around your community, but again, if there's a disaster, your community is impacted likely. So looking at larger region, regional areas, getting your volunteers involved, getting your staff involved. It also gives them kind of a break from the day-to-day and it helps them participate in their own life-saving activities for themselves and the animals. And, you know, I think a lot of people deep down actually enjoy thinking through this type of stuff, even though it might be scary and it might be daunting. It helps them be responsible for themselves and their own, the, the actions that they need to take for themselves and collectively as a workplace. I often see like when disasters happen, community members who are themselves impacted wanting to get involved in helping support organizations that are also impacted in the community just so they can feel like they're a part of something bigger. So don't think that this all falls on one person's shoulders. This could be a team building exercise. It could be a volunteer project, but it just needs to happen because we are seeing the intensity and the volume of disasters. So we want to make sure that people have something in place. It may not have to be the most comprehensive plan, but as long as there's an action, like step one, one through five or step one through 10, this is what we're going to do in order. And everyone knows exactly what their roles are. Then, you know, it's better than nothing. A couple of things you said there that I think are really important. One was just simply defining the who part, right? In a perfect world, every organization has clearly defined roles, structure, leadership, and all staff know those things, but that's not the case. Smaller nonprofits, for example, all volunteer-based organizations, I don't want to get into that either, another episode probably, but the point is, no matter how the organization is run, even just defining one person or a small group of people, put together a phone tree, like I need to know who to go to when the S, I guess we could say, is hitting the fan, right? Like get clarity on that and that there's no conflicting information or I suppose worse, you know, no information at all. Yeah, I mean, the buddy system has worked for years, right? Remember when we were in like kindergarten and nursery and they would pair us up with someone to make sure if we're playing in the sandbox and someone swallows a toy that there's your buddy will, you know, call the teacher over. The buddy system is a tried and true method that has literally worked for all scenarios. And this is the type of situation where having your buddies there um, to help support you and you support them. Um, I don't know necessarily that one has to take the lead, but collectively it can be a group of partners that work together through a disaster situation. You know, again, I, I think that the key to this is finding the time to do it before a disaster hits, right? And and a lot of us don't think about emergency preparedness on the day-to-day. We think about it when something's happening. You know, maybe having work, like a working group that can help support the development of a group plan is the right way to go. One of the hardest things for me as an emergency manager is not is realizing that not everybody thinks about emergencies quite as often as I do. <laughs> That has been a hard reality for me. But I think that the more it is in the national news, which it has been, you know, I'm hoping that that at least makes people think, oh, gosh, like, what if that happens here? But what I am afraid of is because it's always in the national news that people are literally saying, oh, well, there's another there's another wildfire. There's another flood and there's another hurricane. And they become complacent 
in their action to do something about it for themselves. So, you know, I, there's, there's kind of like the, the double-edged sword here where we, I don't know what the right answer is, but I just hope that everyone knows and recognizes that disasters are happening and they're, they're happening everywhere. There's no place that is immune and we just need to make sure that we've got whatever necessary items in place to react to it when we need to. The one thing I will say that if you're having conversations with your team, try to write it down, write it down and make that your your plan, make that part of your plan, because what ends up happening is, you know, when there's turnover, all that stuff leaves with the person who had that conversation and not necessarily the next iteration of staff that might be there. So making sure that it's written down and like it's acted on, like you're exercising it to make sure that it works. Well, one of the points that I want to make, you know, is I think these things aren't isolated. Like we can't just say, oh gosh, you know, tornado came through here. That was crazy, but the storm moved on. We've got some damage to fix, but no problem. There's a long tail to all of this. You know, in the short term, picking up the pieces from the disaster, absolutely. But your community is likely going to be dealing with the same crisis. So what is that going to mean for donations? You know, maybe you're midway through a capital campaign. You know, you're trying to build a new thing, a new clinic. I mean, our construction company is going to be focused on more immediate needs in the community. You know, your project may have to go on hold. All of these things then are going to be impacting other things down the line. So maybe, I don't know, make it part of your next leadership retreat or something. Walk through some scenarios of different things that might happen and how it would affect you and the organization and what you would need to do. You know, do you need to capture every possible scenario of every type of event? Of course not. But I do think that even chatting about it is going to put you in a better position to react. I agree. I think that the conversation, thinking through the different hazards, I mean, step one to any plan is thinking through what could possibly happen to us. Because you need to know what you're planning for. Are you planning for a situation that will require you to evacuate? Then that conversation will be all about how do we evacuate? Do we have enough staff? Do we have enough uh, equipment? Do we have enough supplies? Where are we going? Like all of those questions then are generated. If it's a type of disaster that requires you to stay in place for several days, then obviously it's a different kind of conversation. Do we have enough supplies here to keep us going for seven days, as you know, or for three days, whatever the case may be? Those are the types of I guess, phase one in, in disaster planning that, that you can take. I will just say that it's important. Leadership definitely has the final say in what it all looks like. But I think it's super important to get staff, the day-to-day staff involved in the conversations because they might have the daily operations kind of mindset. And well, I can't do that because I'll be here during that time or you know, they, they might be taking care of a specific animal and only they can manage that animal. So if you're requiring them to go evacuate cats and they're the ones handling, you know, Rufus, who's not a very nice dog, you won't be able to get Rufus out because that person's already engaged in evacuating other animals. So it's just trying to figure out what is the best way to do this and who needs to be at the table and having buy-in from everyone who is going to have a responsibility. You know, I think that's going to be equally as important. Oh, I love that, getting your staff involved. You know, they're they're big topics and staff involvement, frontline staff, 
it's important stuff and makes them feel valued. So it's a great idea. Coalitions make the animal welfare go round, right? Broken record with this on the podcast. So sorry, everyone, but you need to be in contact with others in your community. Even if there's politics, bad blood, I mean, whatever. Don't wait for the disaster to sort that out and pledge that you will be there to help each other because ultimately it's the animals that matter, not conflict, not personalities, you know, however right you may think you are. Now is the time, I think, to rebuild those bridges. Uh, Partnerships are the key to make anything successful. You want to exchange those business cards, so to speak, prior to a disaster so that you have spelled out the terms of that kind of agreement and like how you're going to help each other and what the capacity is so that nobody is caught off guard when there's a disaster and you, you, you've, you've arrived with a hundred animals when your partner said they can only take 10, you know, you want to make sure that that's a partnership you want to continue. And you're literally just flat, like talking about what the capabilities and capacities are for each person. And you're helping each other out. It's, you know, in emergency management, we call that mutual aid. We're, helping each other out when we need it. Sharon, we're coming up on time, so I hope you're okay for one more question, which is how you deal with the emotional part of this. There's a lot going on, and a lot of it right now doesn't feel great. You know, my wife and I were watching a BBC Earth show the other night, and we had to turn it off because the adorable golden snub-nosed monkeys in China that I wanted to show our cats on the TV quickly turn to, you know, how threatened they are and their plight. And listen, it's not that I don't care. Of course I do. But, you know, it's like a constant almost bombardment absorbing all of the doom and gloom. Do you know what I mean? So I'm curious how you manage it. As someone whose life is disaster work, I mean, is it as simple as compartmentalizing, therapy? How do you do it? (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, you know, every day is a different day and you just get up and do what you got to do and you know, as much as I am a planner, I try to just kind of take every moment for itself. I, I will say that the one thing that this job gives me is an appreciation for the moment, because you never know what can happen in the next hour, in the next day. In the ne- and so I'm constantly thinking in that way. And especially, and I agree with your wife, like sometimes it's just too much and I need to shut it off. Um, you know, you, self-care is incredibly important. You know, yes, there's so much going on in our day-to-day lives and then in the world and then hearing about other things that we love being impacted by stuff that we're doing is just, it's too much. And I think that what balances out all of it is doing the things you love to do. And for some people, it's crocheting. And for me, it's kayaking and hiking and, and kind of being one with nature and trying to like find my Zen moments in those moments and realizing that the world is still a beautiful place and that people are still inherently good. And, and just kind of going back to that uh, sort of mantra of, yeah, I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to do the best I can with what I have. And I'm going to try and make whatever difference I can in whatever way I can. Thank you to Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, Kim Clonch, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast. <laughs>